The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and what with, with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, My name is Jeff Miller. I am on staff here at Sacred City. I'm a church planting resident. Uh, So Sacred City is training me to do all things church planting. So uh, within the next uh, couple years when Sacred City is ready, um, hopefully they'll give me an opportunity to to plant a church here in the Quad Cities to put roots here and and, uh, build another congregation uh, on this side of the river. So I'm thankful for that opportunity. Uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm reading a lot. uh, I'm being told what to do a lot. And um, it's been good. Um, I know you're like, being told what to do is good. It has been good. Uh, For the last 10 years or so, I've been in youth ministry. So I've been a youth pastor at uh, a local church over in Rock Island and a church in Dallas and in a church in Delaware. And we've gotten, my wife and I, the kind of the full experience of of youth ministry. And, um, but in the midst of that, our souls were really tired. Uh, We were really worn out. We were really, um, I wouldn't say necessarily on the verge of breaking down, but, but we were tired. And um, coming to Sacred City has been a uh, a joy for our soul. It's been uh, renewing for our soul. And um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's been good for us. It's been hard for us as well. Uh, I'm in a position now where I'm not really doing much. I mean, I'm reading and I'm writing reports and I'm doing what Sam asked me to do and what Ben tells me to do and what Joel tells me to do and what Justin tells me to do and what my missional community tells me to do and what my wife tells me to do and what my kids tell me to do. And so um, I, I've been in a performance kind of mode, like go out and do and be these things. And, and now I find myself in a spot where uh, I'm able to rest and I'm able to um, get renewal. And uh, it's been good for me. I know it won't always be this way, so uh, I'm enjoying it while I can. So that's just a little bit about me. I'm also uh, married to my wife, Alicia. We've been married for 12 years now. She's hanging out in the back. I have two boys as well. I have an 11-year-old named Parker uh, and a nine-year-old named Carson. And uh, we are, are loving life. We also have a golden doodle that's about two years old. And uh, 
I won't even tell you about her. Um, but she's, she's fun. Okay, so that's a little bit of our life. We've lived over in Bettendorf now for about two years and uh, are enjoying all things Bettendorf. Uh, everything they told us about it was true. Okay, so we're, enjoy, we're enjoying it and, and living life there. So that's a little bit about me. That's enough about me. I want to get out of the way and, and kind of present where we're going this morning. Uh, we're starting a new series this morning. As you can see, we've got a new graphic. We've got things going on. Uh, we're going to be talking about the anatomy of the soul uh, for the next eight weeks or so. So we just wrapped up a series called The Sacred Life. And in The Sacred Life, what we did was we took uh, some time out and we talked about our identities uh, that are given to us in Christ. So those are identities of, of family. We are adopted into the family of God by God. We are missionaries. We are those who bring the message of reconciliation uh, to our city and to the people around us. We are servants. We are those who serve uh, in the ways that Jesus did to the people that are around us. And we're learners. We take on the yoke of Christ and we learn from him. And then we began to live, see how those identities lived out affects our lives. And we call those rhythms. So what do we do because we are these things? What do we do because we are a family of missionary servant learners? And we've been talking about that. And what we want to do now and transition into this series is, is part of living out those identities and rhythms, though, requires an understanding of the way in which we're made. We need to be able to understand the way in which we're made if we're going to be a family of missionary servant learners. So we want to take a look at the Psalms and we want to continue the discussion and move forward uh, into fully living out those identities that we've been given by Christ. And we want to understand that our emotions are crucial in order for you and I to be able to do that, crucial for you and I to live more fully in the identities that Christ has given to us. And to be honest, feelings and experiences and emotions are are something that we just aren't all that good at in our culture today. In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth, said, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then after that, Solomon goes on to list things, times to mourn, times to weep, time for joy, time for planting, time for reaping, and, and the list goes on and on and on. But in the world we live in today, emotions are a bit confused, and, and sometimes we have a trouble putting our finger on exactly what we should feel and when we should feel it, and who we should weep with, and who we should mourn with, and should we be celebrating in the midst of our mourning, or should we be celebrating in the midst of weeping, and just how do we work all those things out in the midst of uh, our world? So that's really what our, our sermon series is going to be about. You see, the truth is, for, for myself anyway, that uh, for most of my life I've been pretty emotionally unintelligent living my life as if I'm on a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And I would imagine that probably the same is true for you, or if not, you've watched people around you that are on an emotional roller coaster. They're up, and then they're down, and then they're climbing, and then they're shooting down, and then they're kind of going sideways and going this way, and then they're back, and there's this an emotional roller coaster that, that you and I watch. And some of you are, are on that roller coaster, some of you are maybe witnessing that roller coaster, but when we're on that roller coaster, it's tough for us to get a grasp on what we should be feeling or where we should be taking the things we're feeling or why we're feeling the way we are feeling and, and what in the world are we supposed to do with that and how do we respond to it. And because of that, we often struggle with what to do with our emotions. And part of living everyday lives with gospel intentionality requires us to learn how to be human. It requires us to learn what to do with these emotions. So over the next eight weeks, we want to start by engaging our emotions and find out that our emotions are actually a gift that help us understand our heart and the desires of it. Now, we need to be careful in saying that because many of us have, again, seen emotions used in the wrong way, and they don't often seem like a gift. 
They don't often seem like something that we want to experience or want other people to experience, but we've been given scripture as believers that helps us find our way in the midst of this. John Calvin famously said that the Psalms are the anatomy of the soul. So through this series, we're going to take a walk through the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at several Psalms in order to better understand our emotions and the complexity of our soul. Part of the human experience is learning how to deal with our emotions and even the emotions of other people. So we're going to look at eight basic human emotions through this series. We're going to talk about things like anger, guilt, hurt, grief, shame, gladness, and today we'll walk through the area of loneliness. And our hope and our goal through this is that as we walk through these emotions, when we experience them, we'll see that these emotions were actually given to us to push us into the Father. They're given to us as a gift to show us the things that are going right and also the things that are going wrong. See, when we experience emotions, they're awakening things inside of us that show us what's right with the world and at the same time show us what's wrong with the world and should push us to the only one that could do something about it, and that's the Father, our Creator. And when we do this, it allows us to experience the abundant life. Okay, and I want to be careful using that term this morning because I think a lot of churches have taken the term abundant life and we've thrown it out kind of flippantly and we've just used it and, and maybe even in our American culture today when we hear the, about the abundant life, we think about health and wealth and prosperity and kids that listen. Actually, that's the only one I think of, right? Like kids that listen, like that's the abundant life for me. And Jesus talked about the abundant life in John 10.10. 10. He said, Christ came to give life and life abundantly. Now, I think that for those of us that have a gospel background, we know well enough uh, to know that as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the abundant life that Jesus is talking about is not necessarily the things of health and wealth and prosperity. I'm still holding out for the kids that listen part, but the health and wealth and prosperity is not always true. It's not always what we experience on this end. If you're following the American dream, though, or the American version of abundant life, you'll be looking for all those things, but the gospel paints a different picture of abundant life. In fact, Scripture actually gives us a really basic definition of what abundant life is. It says that the abundant life is found in knowing God and being known by God. That's the abundant life. Knowing God and being known by God. And I know that sounds really simplistic, and you're like, oh, yeah, I I can do that, but that's a lot harder than what it sounds You see, the abundant life is found only in Christ and the eternal life that he offers to us. Anything else will keep us chasing, will keep us wanting, will keep us uh, on a hamster wheel, so to speak, or a treadmill, and we'll talk about that as we get into the sermon, but the word abundant in the Greek, and I'll save you my mispronunciation of it, I'll just tell you what it means in the Greek. It's a very long definition, actually. It's exceedingly, very high, beyond measure, more, I don't even know what this word is, superfluous. Yep, that one, okay? A quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one could expect or anticipate. Huh. So the abundant life is exceedingly very high beyond more, a quantity so abundant as to be considerably more than what one would expect or anticipate. But if that's not health and wealth and prosperity, what in the world are we looking for? 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The Apostle Paul tells us that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, and he does it by his power, a power that is at work within us that belong to him. Scripture goes on to say that eternal life is this, that they may know you, 
the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's Jesus speaking, and he's saying, true, abundant, eternal life is in me. It's knowing Christ and knowing the Father, and that's the abundant life that you and I are looking for or or chasing after, so to speak. So the question for today will be then, sort of what, what role do our emotions play in the abundant life? What role do our emotions play in the abundant life? Because if, if emotions are given to us by God, if they're a gift to lead us toward something, what are they leading us toward? And if it's leading us toward abundant life, what's that look like? So let's begin to just break this down a little bit for, for all of us in the room. Emotions are something that every single one of us experiences. Now, some of us in the room may experience some emotions more fully than others may experience them. Some of us more uh, may choose to engage in our emotions. Some of us may choose to run away from our emotions. Uh, And we've seen people live on both ends of that, right? We've seen people who uh, use their emotions to manipulate people. We've also seen people that that seemingly have no emotions. They're unfazed by everything that comes along. And we we see the spectrum of both of those things. And I think it's important up front for us to acknowledge that emotions are God-given. Emotions are not sin. Emotions are beneficial and they are healthy when they're used in the right way. You could even say that we've been given emotions by God in order that we might experience him more fully in order that we might experience this abundant life that Jesus is talking about in John 10.10, or that Paul talked about in Ephesians 3.20. The problem is the way in which you and I experience and use our emotions aren't always healthy. Probably every single one of us in the room this morning has been a victim to somebody using their emotions in an unhealthy way. Somebody has gotten too angry Somebody has uh, made us feel guilty, or maybe our own guilt has robbed us of a joy in our life, or, or shame, or even today's loneliness has been maybe used against you, or used in such a way that, that you don't feel like you're fully human anymore. So hopefully through this series, you'll hear God's word, and, and, and you'll be able to be better equipped to experience that abundant life and become fully human through your emotions. This morning, we're talking about loneliness. And I think it's important that we describe and and define maybe what loneliness is. So I'm going to give you a basic definition, and I think loneliness will play out uh, as we go through this this morning. But loneliness is a feeling that speaks to our deep hunger to belong and be known. Loneliness is a feeling that speaks to our deep hunger to belong and be known. But we live in a culture today that does not uh, look favorably upon loneliness, We live in a culture today that says, do everything you can do not to be lonely. And oftentimes when we are lonely, we find ourselves being embarrassed. We find ourselves being ashamed of the fact that we are are lonely. Like when we're lonely, we feel like we're experiencing something wrong or that something's wrong with us for experiencing loneliness. Like, how can I be alone? I'm in a room with 180, 185 other people, but how can I possibly be alone in the midst of this? And some of you may talk yourself out of your loneliness. Like, no, look, there's all these people around me. But others of you in the room may be around a group of 180 people and say, no one here knows me. I'm just here. I'm just a body warm in this chair. I'm just a person that's here and I don't feel connected. It's been said that loneliness is the most common human experience. Out of all the emotions we'll talk about, it's been said that loneliness is the most common human experience. I say that this morning because I think that levels the playing field for us. 
to know that everyone in the room has experienced this, to know that everyone in the room is experiencing this on some level should be freeing to us. It should be something that, that helps us as we see that those around us are experiencing this too, and we're not the only one. Our loneliness began in the garden with the sin of Adam, and it's been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And we'll talk about Adam a bit today and, and what he did when he sinned and, and where he found himself. But I want us to see this morning that the truth in loneliness is that loneliness is a gift. Loneliness is a gift. Because of loneliness, you and I desire relationships. We desire relationships with ourselves. We desire relationships with others. And ultimately, we desire a relationship with God, the one who can heal our loneliness. And I realize this morning as I say that, some of you are experiencing loneliness and you're like, dude, this is not a gift. I don't want anybody to experience what I'm feeling. I don't want to be lonely. And there's others of you at the same time who don't feel lonely. As I was given this topic to preach on, my first response to it was, I don't view myself as a lonely person. I, don't, I can't really remember a time in my life when I really felt lonely. I've kind of always had family around. I've always had friends around. I've always had something going on. I've always uh, kind of been liked by people. And, and uh, I like uh, uh, a long time ago, people broke down like a personality test and they put us in like categories of dogs, which I was like, oh, sweet. Okay. And they said like, there are some people who are poodles that do all they can to get attention, right? Poodles are up and down and they're all over the place and they do whatever they can to get attention. And then they said, there's other people who are on the opposite end of that. They're bloodhounds. They're people who are kind of slow moving right? They just kind of process their way through life and they want facts and they want statistics and they want to know exactly what's going on before they'll make a decision. And then there are other people who are pit bulls. They're aggressive. They're, they're type A, right? They're just go-getters. They're people that just see what they want and they take after it. They walk into a room like this and they command attention and they start leading people in the way in which they should go. And then the last group of people that, that I fell into was Labradors. It's like, cool. Labs are fun. I guess they're kind of big. People seem to like them, and, that, that, and that's kind of what Labradors do, right? Labrador will, will read the temperature of the room and be okay with it. There are people who you could tell them what to do, and they do it. There are people that when you get really angry at them, they say, okay, I understand that. I see that, and they go on. You don't often hear in the news about Labradors attacking people, right? They just don't do it. Probably they'll run away before they do that. And when I, that was explained to me, I thought, man, I, I guess I'm a Labrador, okay? And I just fell into that. Like, yeah, Labradors are, are lovable animals. People like them. People don't have a problem approaching them. And, but listen, as I began to discover this about myself, when I first heard it, I used it as, as an excuse not to be those other things. I used it as an excuse to not be aggressive. I used it as an excuse to not do hard work. I used it as an excuse to uh, maybe not be in front of the crowd. I used it as an excuse, and, and what was happening was I was hiding in the midst of my loneliness. Because when you fill yourself into one category, you get ostracized, you get put aside, and this is all that you are. And that can make you feel lonely, like, what if I want to be a poodle? But I can't. What if I want to be a pit bull? And I can't. I'm stuck in this category. What happens is, Throughout life, as you and I go on, we, we experience these emotions, we experience loneliness, and what happened along the way, though, is somewhere along the way we got hurt, we got rejected, we got neglected, we got betrayed, and maybe even ignored by those closest to us, and we learned really quickly how to act in response to those feelings. You learned how to be a pit bull, or you learned how to be a poodle, or you learned how to be a Labrador, or um, a bloodhound. You learned how to be all those things. 
And what happens is, is though, we get in the midst of that and we begin to feel like, well, I'm only meant for this category of people. I'm comfortable with this group and we begin to close ourselves off. We begin to shut down or maybe even put up walls in our life. And what we do is we minimalize or we ignore or at the very least we, um, we suppress our emotion of loneliness. Typically when it comes to loneliness, there's two responses for us. There's one, it's just shut it down. It's a denial of it. Nope, I'm not lonely. Simple as that. I am just not that. The other is to overcompensate through, bus- through busyness. Overcompensate through busyness, which is really just a fancy way of, say- of saying we're hiding. We're keeping so busy that we can't be known by people. We're keeping we're so busy that people can't really know us and we don't have time to know anybody else. We shut it off, we deny it, or we overcompensate through busyness, which is hiding. There's an author named Susie Becker, and she wrote a small book called The All Better Book. And in the book, uh, what Susie does is she sat elementary school students down, and she had them try to solve some of the world's greatest problems. She asked uh, elementary school students about uh, what we should do about the problem with the shrinking uh, ozone layer. She asked elementary school kids how we should help people stop smoking. One of the questions she asked the elementary school students was this. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. So let me read it to you again. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest to elementary school students? Here's some of the answers. An eight-year-old girl named Kailani said, people should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an equal or even amount of people, you assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. The girl's got a system, okay? A nine-year-old boy named Max said, make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? What happened to you today? (laughs) An eight-year-old named Matt said, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. Matt's going places. Now listen, perhaps though the most heartbreaking response It came from an eight-year-old named Brian, and he said this. He said, sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do these things. Hmm. With, With billions of people in the world, someone should figure out a system where no one is lonely. The truth is this morning that there is no pain like loneliness. When I read, man, it's choking me up even... When I read Brian's words there, I did just like you did. I laughed at the other kids. I was like, yeah, right. Put them in the newspaper, food that talks to you, like get a pet or a husband or wife. And then I read Brian's and I just thought, man, like, there's no pain like that. A little kid, an eight-year-old experiencing it says, here's some of the things I do. And I wonder for us as adults, like what are some of the things that we run to? How often do I find myself stomping my feet or singing a song, or reading a book, because I'm really lonely, and I don't know how to express it. As I was preparing for this, I began to think about loneliness, as I should have, because I was preparing for this, and loneliness is really strange in our world today. We live in a world today that's connected like it never has been before. With the swipe of a finger, or the click of a mouse, you and I can no longer be lonely 
friends and acquaintances are readily available for us. We can go on Facebook and we can like things. We can go on Instagram and we can heart things. We can go anywhere we want and we can be surrounded by people at any given moment. Social media in our world is just is crazy. There are things from Facebook to Twitter to Snapchat to Instagram to Tumblr to YouTube to Periscope to LinkedIn to Vine, Kick, Pinterest, The City. Some use Tinder. Some use Christian Mingle. And that's just to name a few. That's just this week. Next week, somebody will come out with more. Next month, somebody will come out with more ways for us not to be lonely. Next year, they'll come out with more ways for us not to be lonely. All of these things, all of these social media sites have something in common. What they're doing is they're finding ways to create atmospheres where people aren't lonely. But the truth of social media, though, is it's actually a bit of an oxymoron. We're not being social at all. We're sitting behind a screen instead of having face-to-face interactions with people. We're liking from afar. We're commenting from afar instead of meeting at a coffee shop and saying, I like your photo. (laughs) Your face is nice. You have a good family, okay? We just don't do that. Like, like there's something in all of us that drives us to be known, but yet there's also something inside of us that makes us all hide. Like, what's so hard about it? Like, you're looking at me this morning, and you know I'm broken, and I know I'm broken, and I'm looking at you, and, and I can tell that some of you are way broken, and you know you're broken, but what keeps us from being honest about that? Like, what keeps us from really saying to each other, like, hey, I know you, you know me, let's be honest with each other about it, we're broken, I'm lonely, I'm looking for a connection, that sounds like a bit of a dating site. Let's maybe not go too far with that, but why, we need to do that, we need to be able to walk into that, and, but instead we like from afar. It's because in our loneliness, we're exposed. In our loneliness, we're admitting something about ourselves that we don't like. We're admitting a fault And that always puts us in an uncomfortable spot with people. But in our loneliness, what's really happening is we hunger for community and we're hungering for relationship, but something's keeping it from us. We're, We're hiding it. And our tendency, though, is to seek connection and relationships through isolation rather than face to face interaction. Do you see how social media is actually isolating? It makes it so I don't really have to connect with people. On social media, I can be whoever I want to be. I can only ever show you my highlight reel on social media. I can show you great pictures of my family. I can show you great pictures of my kids and my stuff and my dog and my wife and, uh, and all this stuff I have going on. But I, I bet if you've been following me on social media, you haven't seen one picture of the car I drive around. Why? Well, because the car I drive around is a 97 uh, Acura CL and it has no hood. Like, what? Yeah, it has no hood. And the reaction that you just had is the reaction that most people have when they see me rocking around in a car that has no hood. Okay, I got in an accident on the bridge and I only have liability on the thing because it's a 97 and I should only have liability insurance on it. So I began to have to replace all the parts by myself. So I ripped off the hood. I got new headlights. I got a new radiator. I maneuvered the bumper somewhat back into place. And for now, I don't have a hood. I have a hood sitting in my yard, but it's too dented up to reattach back to the car in a proper fashion. So I've been rocking around with no hood. I called the Davenport Police Department. I have a buddy that's in the police department and said, hey, is this illegal? He said, no, you don't have to have a hood. You only have to have bumpers. I was like, yeah, (laughs) that's great news. He was like, there's lots of people that ride around the city with no hood on their car. Can I tell you that since I've been riding around the city with no hood on my car, I have not seen one. (laughs) Not one. 
but I promise you, everyone has seen me. We pull into parking lots and people are like, <clears throat> like, I say all that to say this, why haven't I posted that on social media? Because it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to ride around in a car with no hood. It's embarrassing that, that, that my car is not a highlight reel for me and my family. I wish I could post you out pictures of it and be like, look how tight my car is, y'all. But it's just not, it's busted. It's just busted. I might as well take a picture of my bike and put it out there because you'd like that better than you like the car. And, but listen, my tendency on social media is to hide. I don't have to show you my crazy there. I don't have to show you the ugly of my life there. I can just show you my highlight reel. And let's be honest, that's what most people are doing on social media. We're posting our highlight reel. And we all know the person on, on social media that's not posting their highlight reel, right? And what do we do with that person who just has like diarrhea of the mouth on social media? We're like, hide. I don't want to see that anymore. This person's just too real for me. This person's got a bit too much going on. This person's on that roller coaster, right? John Orberg wrote a book titled, Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Them. <laughs> Problem is, we don't ever really get to know people when it's only through the guise or the mask of social media. I said it before, social media is a bit of an oxymoron. We're sitting behind a screen rather than actually being social. Many people excel at creating relationships through social media, but in real life they have few, if any, real meaningful relationships and little authentic community. I've seen people even in our culture today that will go out to a coffee shop, a place that's supposed to be social, and they'll sit behind a screen and, and be social that way rather than interacting with the people around them. And I'm probably a bit guilty of that myself. But in this world of social media, we're seeking connection but we're doing it in ways that won't ever really connect us. The hunger for community is what drove Plato to write The Republic. It's what uh, challenged Augustine to write The City of God. In his desire for community, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his ever-famous I Have a Dream speech, and in that speech he made a plea for all human beings to one day together to sit down at the table of fellowship, to join hands, to sing a common song. The desire for the community or for community drives us to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do, to join hands, to sing a common psalm, song. Excuse me. This morning, we read Psalm 25, and just like most of the psalms, David and the others like him experience the full gamut of emotions, including loneliness when he cries out to God. So if you have a Bible this morning, I'd love for us to turn over to Psalm 25, and we're going to begin to walk through Psalm 25 together. As we walk through this psalm together, I hope that you will see how loneliness can drive us into full and abundant living and how we, when we grasp what loneliness does in our life, that it can lead us to abundant living, it can lead us to full living rather than denial, rather than busyness, rather than hiding, we can be known and we can know fully, both God and the people around us. Psalm 25 has a, has a basic three-part breakdown, and we're going to walk a bit through that. The first uh, breakdown begins in verses 1 through 7. Right off the bat, we see David in verse 1 says, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. In verse 2, he says, Oh my God, in you I trust. What's interesting about that to me is that we know David is this guy who is a man after God's own heart, right? We've been told that in scripture, but what's interesting to me is that we find David in a place in this psalm where David's crying out to God and saying, to you I lift my soul, to you I put my trust, because I see David as a guy who's got it all together. 
as a guy who shouldn't have to make statements like this, as a guy who walks around just pondering the ways of the Lord, constantly thinking on God. But the truth of David is that apparently he's a lot more like you and me than, I, than we've chosen to acknowledge. What David's doing here in verses one through seven is David is reaffirming his faith because just like you and me, David apparently has placed his faith in something else. David's placed his faith in something else. Think about it. There's no need to reaffirm your faith in God if your faith is already firmly planted in God. David wouldn't need to say to you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust if he had always been doing that. He has to stop and he's reaffirming. He's replanting his feet, so to speak. David could have probably here been relying on his accomplishments, his standing as the king, his strength, or anything else out there. But David doesn't. David knows that that's not where his faith belongs. All those other things that David could have relied on, his, his accomplishments, his standing as king, his strength, that's faith in himself. That's faith in his own ability. But here he's saying, that won't work. That just won't do. I've got to place it in something else. I've got to place it in the only thing that's firm. What's interesting, though, is David would only know that if David slowed down his life and allowed himself to feel the loneliness. David has to allow himself to feel the disconnect from God here. Because listen, David could have stayed busy with kingly stuff. David could have shut it out because kings just don't get lonely. But if he had done that, he never would have experienced the joy that came from his loneliness. Look at what David's loneliness drives him to do. It drives him back to the Father. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in you I trust. David feels the weight of his loneliness, and, he, and, and what it does is it drives him back to the Father. David, in his solitude, goes to the Lord. David doesn't go back to himself. David doesn't go to his buddies for a pep talk. David stops and feels the weight of his loneliness and goes to the Lord. You see, David's loneliness did what it was supposed to. In a very real way, when you and I shut off our loneliness, when we deny it, when we hide it, we're interrupting the process that God has for our life. God is trying and attempting to draw us back in to him. Our loneliness should show us our need for the Father, our need for a connection to him. But when we cut it off, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. David's loneliness gives him an opportunity to get his heart right and begin to know himself. You see, it's in the lack of intimate relationships that David's pain is exposed. Do you hear that? In the lack of intimate relationships, David's pain is exposed. So there's a sense here in this, if David would have kept himself busy, if David would have relied on his own strength, he becomes even more loneliness, or excuse me, he becomes even more lonely. He becomes even more tired. He becomes even more desperate. In his lack of intimate relationships, David's pain is exposed. And now as we go on, we see what David hungers for. If you look to verses four and five, what is it that David's hungering for? Verse four says, make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. What makes David and us ultimately lonely is the fact that he's doing his day-to-day -day life without a connection. 
David's doing his day-to-day life without a connection, without a connection to the Father, without a connection to himself, without a connection to others, and he's hungering for a connection. In order for David to say, make known to me your ways, it means that he must have been living according to his own ways. If he was a living, living according to God's ways, he would have already known them. But instead, he says, make known to me your ways. He doesn't want to be put to shame or for his enemies to conquer him, which would further isolate him. David's saying, I'm tired of living my own way. I'm tired of following my own path. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I need a connection to the Father, and I want your path for my life. I want your way for my life, not my way anymore. And he gives the reasons. I don't want my enemies to conquer me. I don't uh, want to be put to shame, which further isolates him. You see, if David stays alone, he becomes further isolated. His enemies now have a leg up on him. His shame is now getting the best of him. But in order for this to happen, David has to slow down and wait for the Lord. Look at how long he says he waits. I wait all the day long. He's desiring to be led rather than to do the leading. I was trying to think just last night as I I was kind of preaching this to myself, and when was the last time I waited all day for something? I couldn't really think of a time. We live in a culture today when we want something, we go get it. If you're hungry, you get food. If you're thirsty, you get a drink. If you, uh, any, anything basically that you can think of that you want, it's pretty readily accessible to you day, today. If you want to talk to your folks, you can call them up. You can go to their house. If you want to um, connect with someone, it's just a click away, right? We don't have to wait, but David says, I'll wait all the day long for you to lead me in your truth and for you to teach me. David saying, I want to be led rather than to be the one doing the leading of my life. Listen, when you're the one that's constantly leading your life, it's exhausting. We get on this treadmill of go, 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 and do, 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 and perform, perform, perform. And I'm not saying that, that achieving is a bad thing, but what I am saying is that achieving is not a substitute for connecting. Achievement is not a substitute for connecting. Just because you're achieving things doesn't mean you're connected. Most of you have been recognized for something at this point in your life before, but you've been in a room full of people that you don't necessarily know that's recognizing your accomplishments, and all you can think about is, I want to go home. It's because you're not known by those people, and your achievements didn't bring you the connection you thought they would. Yeah, maybe people cheer for you, and maybe people clap for you, and maybe they give you attaboys and pats on the back, but it's not a substitute for connecting. Those people don't know your life. Those people don't know what it took for you to get there. You see, the problem with a treadmill is you never get anywhere. You expend a great deal of energy, but when you're done, you're in the same place you were when you got on, only now you're breathing heavy. When life becomes all about your achievements, it means that you have to have all the answers. It means that you have to make all the decisions. It means that you have to carry the load of your household, and that's exhausting. When you feel the pressure to do all those things and to lead your life We become isolated and we become lonely. And what happens? Since we don't like the feeling of being alone alone and lonely, we try harder to get past it. We try harder to fill the void. We become blind to the fact of what our loneliness was meant to do for us. Our loneliness was meant to draw us into community or pushing us to connect. But instead of, 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 of giving in to our loneliness and experiencing our loneliness and feeling the weight of our loneliness, we instead, we get busy and we keep ourselves from actually really connecting. 
Instead of loneliness having the effect that it's supposed to have, it does the opposite because we never really connect because we won't feel it. I want to pause real quick too because I think there's a danger here for, for parents in the room as well. For parents, you're leading your family. And our kids will typically do what we do. Those of you that have kids that are, that are old enough to talk, you know this all too well. When you're in a room and you say a word that, that you didn't know your kid was supposed to hear, what's your kid do with that word? They grab a hold of it like it was candy, right? And they just go around the house saying that word, okay? And I'm talking about no. I don't know what word you guys are thinking of. But they just do it, right? Your kids do what you do. Listen, what this means for us parents in the room, what this means for us is if your kids see you busy all the time, guess what they're going to do? They're going to stay busy all the time. Then their busyness becomes your busyness. Parents that are dealing with like anywhere from junior high to high school kids now, their busyness becomes your busyness. And then you've got to deal with your busyness in the midst of their busyness. Then you've got to work out carpool schedules, and you've got to work out work schedules, and you've got to work out uh, dinner schedules, and you've got to work out all these other things. Like, I'm tired just saying it. But when your kids see you busy, they will be busy as well. They will do what you do. I, I watched a YouTube video the other day. I'd posted it on Facebook months back, and I, when I was thinking of this, I posted it yesterday again. And there was a video that was posted not long ago, and, and parents were sat down in a room, and they were asked by the people doing the, the videoing, they said, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? And the parents began to list off people like Justin Bieber, and Nelson Mandela, and Kim Kardashian, and Jimi Hendrix, and there were all kinds of, of, of names they threw out. The list went on and on and on and on. And then what they did was they had the parents exit the room, and they brought those same parents' kids in the room. And they asked them the same question. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? And one after the next, and the parents were watching from a video screen in the next room, the kids began to give the same answer. Family. Mom and dad. If you could have dinner with anybody, dead or alive, who would it be? And kid after kid said, mom and dad. Family. Huh. I wonder, though, why those kids would long for that. But you don't have to wonder long because the truth is our kids long for that because many of our kids don't have that. They don't have dinner with mom and dad. They don't have uh, a time where your family can get together and talk through things and ask the questions that that little boy said our food should ask us. What'd you do today? How's it going today? We need to be able to ask each other those questions and then sit in the weight of that. Why are you experiencing what you're feeling? How are you dealing with your emotions Parents, your kids are watching. Grandparents, your kids, your grandkids are watching. They're learning how to deal with loneliness through watching us. For those of you that don't have kids, that's free advice, okay? It's just, it is what it is. But we're all learning what to do with our loneliness by watching the people around us. We're seeing what other people are doing and we're basing what we should do with our loneliness off of what other people do. If we see other people hide, we'll hide. If we see other people deny it, we'll deny it. Let's jump back in a, a bit to our text this morning. David easily could have kept busy and moved on and performed and defeated more armies and killed more lions with his bare hands. But instead, in his loneliness, David seeks God. David lifts his soul to the Lord and asks for direction and guidance for his steps. 
I was thinking about this, like, what do you do when you feel lonely? Are you, are you just pushing through, or are you lifting your soul to the Lord? Now, listen, when I hear a statement like that, though, like, I get really, um, I don't even know how to word it. I want to try harder. When I hear a statement like that, like, where are you going in your loneliness? Are you pushing through, or are you going to the Lord? In my head, I say, oh, I should go to the Lord more often. I need to do better at that. I need to try harder to go to the Lord. I need to have a Bible nearby. I need to have my like praying bench close by. And I've got to be ready for when I feel lonely. And I've just got to work harder. Who did I just make that about? I made it all about me. I need to try harder. I need to lift my soul to the Lord. And what happens is it'll lead me to more performing. But notice what David does in verses 6 and 7 here. Twice in verses 6 and 7, David references God's steadfast love and thinking on his past sins. He says this, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David references God's steadfast love when thinking of his past sins. And we don't have time this morning to go through David's lists of sins. Like, well, I guess we could, but we're just not going to. So what if David here was only referring, though, um, to, to, Dave, to his sin of loneliness or pushing through his loneliness to get to the ne- next task? What is it that moves David from his loneliness to a connection? The thing that David points to here is God's steadfast love. David doesn't point to his own accomplishments. David doesn't point to his own acknowledgement that he surrendered his soul to the Lord. David's not depending on his actions. He's depending upon the steadfast love of God. That's God's covenant with man. It's in God's generous, loving kindness to us that David realizes this is the thing that keeps me going. This is the thing that allows me to surrender my soul to the Lord. As believers, we, just like David, as a fellow believer, should find great security in knowing that God is a loving God and that his love is not fickle. God is not like a three-year-old girl I know that invites you to her birthday party one week and then the next day uninvites you, making you plead with her on Instagram and on Facebook to be re-invited to that birthday party. That's a pain that's close to my heart. I'm thankful that God is not that. I'm thankful that God is not so fickle that one day he's like, yeah, I love you. And the next day he says, nope, you didn't make the cut. And then the next day he's like, yeah, you're back. And the next day, not so good. I'm thankful that that's not our God. We don't have to wonder what God's attitude is toward us because we are told of his steadfast love. That's his generous, loving kindness to us based not on our work, but based on his word and his love for us. We know that God will be the same tomorrow as he is today because of the truth of his steadfast love. How do we know this? Verses 8 through 16, David shows us who God is in the face of our loneliness. Let me just read some of this fast to you. He's talking about God's character here. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love, there it is again, and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall be 
his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. <laughs> what David's doing here is David is recognizing that his life is producing the fruit of loneliness. He's looking at his life and he's saying, I am lonely. But instead of just going to that fruit and that, that rotten fruit and picking it off and saying, it's not here, it doesn't exist, it, I'm going to ignore it, I'm going to perform really hard so that this loneliness doesn't come back. David doesn't just pluck the fruit and say, I can do better, I can try harder. What David does is David doesn't just pick the bad fruit off, David begins to nourish the roots of his soul. David isn't just looking at his loneliness and saying, what do I have to do not to be lonely? David's looking at his loneliness and saying, this is a fruit in my life that I don't like, that maybe shouldn't be here, and I'm going to go to the one who can make this fruit turn to something good, who can take this rotten apple in my life and make it something good. David recognizes his loneliness, and he feels the weight of it, and he goes and meets it head on. In David's loneliness, we actually see what we're missing. Loneliness, just like the feeling of hunger, isn't something we would ignore. If you felt hungry today, you'd leave this place and you'd go get food. You wouldn't just continue to be hungry and say, I don't know how to solve this problem. I just, I cannot figure it out. You don't have, a, have to text a friend to know what to do when you're hungry. You don't have to call your mom or dad or to know what to do when you're hungry. If you're wondering what you need to do when you're hungry, like spend a few minutes around my kids. It's just simple as like going up to somebody and saying, I'm hungry. I need food. I know I ate five minutes ago, but I need more. When we are lonely, we're foolish to ignore it. We're foolish to not know what to do with it. Not because, well, let's, we'll keep talking about it. We need to go to the source that can fix it, that can heal it, that can provide relief from it. Just like if you felt the hunger pains in your stomach this morning. David realizes that his life is producing the fruit of loneliness. He recognizes it. He feels it. And then what David does is he begins to nourish the roots of his soul with the truth of who God is. Let's look at some of them. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Notice David doesn't say, mean and crooked is the Lord. Therefore, he hides his way from sinners. No, he's good and upright. Remember what God does is always good, right, and perfect. That cannot be said of any other human being in the world. God always does what is good and right and perfect. My wife is extremely hot, but she is not always good, right, and perfect. Yes, she's hot. Yes, she's the mother of my children. Yes, she's the one that tells me I'm pretty and she loves me, but she is not always good, right, and perfect. That's found only in God. And because he is those things, he doesn't hide himself or he doesn't hide his ways from us. Because he is good, right, and perfect, he reveals himself to us. He doesn't say, climb this ladder, jump through a few of these hoops, and you'll find me, and you'll find my ways. He says, no, he's good, and he's upright, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. David doesn't stop in verse 8, though, as if that wasn't enough. Move to verse 9. It says, he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Re listen, it's really hard to be humble when we're relying on our own strength, 
when we're relying on our mask, when we're relying on our hiding, when you're working really hard to make a name for yourself, it's really hard to be humble because you're the one doing all the work. When we are not humble, we can't admit, I'm lonely. When we're not humble, we can't admit, I hunger for connection. But when we do admit our need, we go to the rescuer to find his path, which we've talked about in verse 10. It even goes on to say it again. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Generous, loving kindness and faithfulness. I hope this morning that you're hearing a picture of God as generous and loving and kind towards you and gracious towards you. One who reveals himself to you. One who does what is good and upright. In the midst of your loneliness, in the midst of your attempting to not be alone, to hide, to wear a mask, God says, I am here. Verse 11 tells us why God is this way. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it's great. Who gets the credit for the forgiveness of our sin? Who gets the credit for the forgiveness of David's sin? It's not David, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's 100% God. Why does God forgive sinners? Why does God pardon sinners? It's for the sake of his name. Think about this. If God is able to pardon your sins and my sins, who should get the credit for that? He should get the credit for that. He's the one who should be made much of in that instance. It's his name that it's for the sake of. When other people see how great our sin is and what we've been forgiven of, it should show them what a good, gracious father we have that's willing to forgive that and forget that and do the work for us. If God's able to pardon the sins of man, how great must he be? But if you're like me, I quickly forget that feeling of freedom I had when I, when I came to Christ. That feeling of freedom that came when the burden of our sin was washed away. By removing our sin, God is removing our fear of being known for who we really are. When you and I confess our sin and when we con- first confessed our need of a Savior, what we're doing is the most lonely, most exposing thing possible. We're saying, I am busted. I am broken. I am worse than I ever thought I could be. But at the same time, I'm simultaneously more loved than I ever dared imagine. We can be honest about our condition. We can be honest about who we are. By removing our sin, God is removing the fear of being known for who we really are. He exposes the truth of our sin, which causes us to be honest while doing something about it. God exposes our sin and just doesn't leave it there for the world to see. He does something about it. This should make us sing. This should make us shout because the Lord in our loneliness drew near to us and provided rescue. In the midst of our loneliness, God didn't say, man, I hope you get this thing figured out soon. Really tired of seeing you so lonely. No, he said, I'm coming to you. I'm going to provide the rescue for you. No other person's like this. God didn't make you come to him. He didn't make you work harder or clean yourself up or like an angry father kind of smack you on the back of the head and say, knock it off. No, he said, I'll do the work for you. Think about that. When you think about somebody who's lonely, our gut reaction is typically not to run to that person. 
When we hear about lonely people or see lonely people, most often we think that person's not fun, that person's not energetic, that person's going to be a drain to me, they're not going to make me feel good about myself, but God sees our loneliness and draws near to us. God sees our loneliness and brought us in through Christ on the cross because of his generous, loving kindness, his steadfast love. You see, this morning, the cross bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. We see how holy God is, and when we think about our loneliness and how desperate we get in the midst of it, we realize how sinful we really are. We realize how desperate we become in our hiding and the things we do to ignore our feelings of loneliness, and we see this separation. But the cross bridges that gap. On the cross, God, through Christ, provided the way for us to be redeemed from our loneliness that was created by sin. You and I today, we're all victims of sin. Because of Adam and Eve, we have a tendency to hide. Adam and Eve, when they sin, they hid. That's exactly what they did in the garden. After they sin, they hide. And when God comes near, Adam says, we hid, listen to this, because we were naked and afraid. What's Adam saying? We were exposed and it scared us. So what we did was we chose to get behind these bushes and hide. I don't know about you, but that's, that sounds a lot like me. When I feel exposed, it scares me and I move toward hiding. But listen to this. But Jesus was forsaken. That is, abandoned. That's the ultimate form of loneliness. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Jesus was exposed for us. Jesus took on our loneliness. And in Christ's loneliness, he performed perfectly on our behalf so we can know God and be fully known by others and including God. Christ has done the work for you to feel the weight of your loneliness and come to him with it because he's paid the price for it. Because our loneliness is satisfied only in intimacy with Christ, our loneliness is satisfied only in intimacy with Christ. That's why David says what he does in verse 14. Let's look at that. In verse 14, it says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. The word friendship here, you may have a note at the bottom of the page of your Bible. It says, secret counsel. The friendship or secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. He makes known to them his covenant. Listen, David is using very precise wording here. David isn't being ambiguous. He uses the word friendship. He's talking about God and us, and using the term friendship. Those who were once enemies are now receiving secret counsel. We were once enemies of God, and now we receive secret counsel. Think about the people that have once been enemies in your life, and maybe you've reconciled it. Most of us, though, though we've reconciled that person being an enemy, won't divulge secret information to that person. We have a lack of trust for that person. We have a, a lack of intimacy, you could say, with that person. and We don't let them in fully, but the word David here uses is friendship. Those who were once enemies are now receiving secret counsel, which means God is making known to us things that are made only, made known only to friends. God is making known to us things that are only made known to friends. 
I wonder, though, if this is how you feel about God, that you are a friend of his. Charles Spurgeon commenting on friendship of the Lord, he said this. I want you to listen to this. It it might blow your mind here a little bit this morning. Charles Spurgeon commenting on the friendship of the Lord says, this signifies familiar intercourse, confidential intimacy, and select fellowship. I'm going to read it again because it was awkward the first time. The friendship of the Lord says, this signifies familiar intercourse, confident intimacy, and select fellowship. Like, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like marriage talk to me. Familiar intercourse, confidential intimacy. Listen, just like in a marriage relationship, spouses, we may have a tendency to maybe hide in the bedroom, as awkward as that may be. And what we do is we make sure all the lights are off when we enter into an intimate relationship, right? We don't want our partner to see our flaws. We don't want our partner to see that area that may be stretching a little bit or that area that may be bulging a little bit different. But listen, in the dark, when my wife's hand reaches over and feels a muffin top, she knows a muffin top is there. That is familiar intimacy, She knows me, and now my faults are known to her. And there's a friendship that's created there. Those are secret, that's secret counsel. That's secret information. She won't share with people that I've got the muffin top there. I hope. (laughs) Do you see how close that is, though? That's the relationship that David is talking about here in verse 14. The friendship, the secret counsel of the Lord. It's an intimacy, a friendship. It's familiar intercourse, confidential intimacy, select fellowship. God's covenant relationship with us provides us with friendship from him that is near and close and intimate. This goes on. This is why David is able to say in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net. That's the net of sin, the net of loneliness. We can again have confidence in this because we know God's character. We see his character and it should cause us to ask why we would ever take our eyes off of him in the first place. He's the one who can pluck us out of the net of sin. He's the one that can truly rescue us from our loneliness. Why would we ever take our eyes off? Idols are, are tough like that, though. Idols are constantly begging for our attention. When our heart feels loneliness, it turns to what it knows, and that's typically us, and that's typically our performance, that's typically our hiding, that's typically our denying. And idols are really loud. But as we move and as I close this morning, this brings us to the final verses of the passage. I want you to see what takes place in David when he recognizes loneliness and he goes to God, the only one that can heal his loneliness. Now, I want to be careful before I read these last few verses to you. What I don't want you to hear is this. Here's three simple steps not to be lonely anymore. The path for David seems to be turn to the Lord, right? Surrender your soul to the Lord. Um, Sorry. It's not a three-step process. It's not do these things and you'll be healed from your loneliness because that's not the truth. What David does is a pattern that works for his life. It's a pattern that he surrenders his soul to the Lord. It's 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 
path in which David surrenders his life to the Lord. I want to follow your path. I want to follow your way. He asks for direction. And then what David does is he believes the gospel. Now listen, I think that that's a good path for us to follow in the midst of our loneliness. But I don't want you to hear that this is how it always works. I want to be careful that you don't leave here and say, well, if I just apply these three easy steps to my life, I will never be lonely again. This is not an infomercial. This is God's word given to you so that we can experience our emotions fully and go to him with them. In verses 16 through 22, David now has a freedom about his speech that he hasn't had before. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Look at what David has done in verse 16. We're 16 verses in, and what has David finally done? David admits, I am in fact lonely and afflicted. But what did David have to do to get to that point? David had to go back and nourish his soul, nourish the roots of his soul with the gospel. He had to remind himself who God is. God is good. God is right. God is perfect. God is good and upright. He leads the humble. He teaches the humble. All his paths are steadfast love and faithfulness. And he goes on, for your name's sake, for the the friendship of the Lord. Once he realizes that I am known by God and I now know God, he's free to be a human being. He's free to say, I'm lonely and I'm afflicted because of it. The troubles of my soul are enlarged in the midst of my loneliness. As a person who is fully known by God, for believers here today, we too can experience the freedom that David felt. We can now be fully known by others without wearing wearing a mask about our brokenness. We can now take off that mask and we could chill out with our constant uh, performing through our job or our accomplishments or our children or our well-maintained home or our charisma to avoid our loneliness. Because all of us are lonely. But as believers, you are known by God and now you can know each other. God didn't just create it to just be us and God and we see this through the creation. God didn't, when God created Adam, he didn't say, well, this is awesome. He says, something's wrong. And he makes a helper for Adam. He realizes that Adam needs community. He said it's not good for him to be alone, so he gave Adam a wife, a helper, a friend, a community. John Ortberg, in that book I mentioned from earlier, Everyone's Normal Till You Get to Know Him, he said this, to experience community is to know the joy of belonging. Being known and loved allows us the opportunity for giving and growing. There is a safety in finding a true home. This is why when we experience authentic community, it's so life-giving. When Alicia and I first began to get around the people of Sacred City and experiencing the Sacred City and the people of it, at first we were like, whoa. And then as we were around those people even more, we were like, whoa. And then we got in missional community with those people and we were like, whoa. And now today, as I lead a missional community and, and, and supposedly leading a group of people today, we're still like, whoa. Like, this is not, I'm not saying that it's been easy. It, it's been hard at times, but I can say that we no longer feel the need to hide in the ways that we were once hiding. We now no longer feel the need to walk into a group of people and have everyone like us or have everyone think we have it all together. I can now walk into my missional community and say, hey guys, I'm driving around in a car with no hood. 
and that be okay. And them to say, life's really hard for you. What Alicia and I saw were people at Sacred City that prized community and actually did it. What we saw was not a program or event for people together. It was people saying, come into my life. People saying, know me. People saying, be with me. And I think that's the question we all really want to have answered. That's what we all really want. We're asking the question of the people around us, will you be with me? Can we spend time together? Can you listen to my pain? Will you pray with me? Will you stand up for me? You see, our loneliness pushes us to seek to be known. But if I bury my loneliness, either in isolation or busyness, I cannot be known. In loneliness, there's a limit to how long I can stand being around others without being fully known. I will easily walk away from a group that does not know me. And I will easily blame that group for not knowing me. Do you see that? If I am in a group of people and I refuse to be known, I can easily walk away from that group and quickly blame those people for not knowing me. But my lack of being known is not a burden that's on my shoulders. Most of us, if you're in a missional community and you are not known, it's probably because you've chosen not to be known. And I don't say that this morning to like stomp your toes out, but I do say that a little bit to step on them. And I say that to myself as well, because oftentimes we walk into this missional community and we just are there and we're not participating and we're not known. And because we're not known, people in our missional communities don't know that it's okay for them to be known. They don't know it's okay for them to be shared, to, to share. The struggle for us in the midst of that is to be known, is to be vulnerable, and that's not an easy thing. For the men in the room, probably specifically and especially for us, being vulnerable is not an easy thing to do. I started to cry a little bit earlier, and I sucked it up real quick. That's vulnerability, and a lot of us do not like to be in that position. But being known requires vulnerability. I do believe if our missional communities will create a space of hospitality, which I believe they do, these are environments where people can come in and be known and fully know people. It's places where people can come into and feel like a normal human being. Places people can come into and say, he's messed up and she's messed up. They're all kind of a mess. Like, maybe I can be a mess here. Maybe I can finally share my story here. Our missional community should be places that engage those that feel lonely and introduce them to Christ who relates with and carried the burden of their loneliness. In the movie, The Help, there's a character named Abby who's the narrator. And near the end of the movie, Abby says this, no one ever asked me what it felt like to be me. Once I told the truth about that, I felt free. Abby's talking about the fact that she has been able to share her story, her full story, and now because of that, she's known, and that set her free in a sense. Man, how freeing that is for us and for outsiders to be able to come into our missional communities and share their stories and tell the truth about themselves. And for us as missional communities to speak life into those people and say, here's how the gospel meets you in that. We're not just having people share their stories and saying, that was really good. We're saying, hey, here's Jesus, and here's how Jesus meets you in that. 
When we're speaking to believers, we could say it sounds like you might be missing Jesus in this area. When maybe unbelievers share, we're saying, this is what Jesus has done for you. And here's how he's welcomed you in. These are places where people can share that they are lonely and places where they can admit and where we can admit that we are too and that Jesus is the answer. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And communion really ties in exactly what we've been talking about here this morning. Communion meets our need for community. In communion, we are reconnecting our lives to the Father. It's an opportunity for us to connect to God once again through his sacrifice for us. As we take the bread this morning, we recall our need for Christ's body to be broken for us. As we drink the wine or the juice this morning, we're reminded of Christ's blood that was shed for outsiders like us to be brought in, to have our loneliness taken away. Also in the midst of this, we're showing our reliance on God and the finished work of Christ. Christ related to our loneliness by being forsaken and abandoned on the cross. He was made lonely so we could be welcomed in and never be alone. He was broken so that we might be made whole. God in his steadfast love toward us welcomes us to this table. The loneliness felt in the garden is broken through Christ, through, through Christ in God's steadfast love. Communion also is a community-forming event. Every single one of us that will come and take from this cup and from this table today are admitting, I need Jesus. I can't think of anything that's more community-building than that. For every single one of us in the room to recognize, I need a Savior. I am broken, and Jesus heals that brokenness. The community that we are longing for, the thing that we're longing for to take away our loneliness is found right here at this table in the body and the blood of Christ and being united with the Father. David, at the end of the psalm, says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we proclaim the same thing for our world, that they might see what we're doing here and we might go out and live this out in order for them to meet a God who's redeemed them from their troubles, who's brought them in from their place of loneliness, and they might meet a God who welcomes them to his table. Let's pray this morning. Father, we are so thankful this morning that you have seen us in our loneliness, and you didn't walk away. God, when you saw our loneliness, you clothed us. You provided a way through Christ on the cross for us to have a relationship, to have a connection with you. You provided us with a way to be honest about who we really are. Father, that you would heal us in this way is amazing to us. Many of us don't understand why you would do this, why you would step out of heaven, why you would sacrifice your only son on a cross to bring lonely people into yourself, but we stand amazed and we stand thankful for it. For those here this morning, Father, that feel the weight of their loneliness, may they see their need to lift their soul to you. May they see the need to surrender the path of their life to you. May they see that you are good and you are upright and you bring instruction in the way that you lead the humble in what is right and you teach us in your ways for your name's sake, not for ours, not that we might get glory. Father, may we lift our soul to you. Father, for those of us that are hiding and ignoring our loneliness, may we embrace it this morning. 
May we go to the one who has steadfast love toward us. God, this morning, may we embrace our humanity through our emotions. May we live the abundant life that you've created for us in the midst of our loneliness. May we take it to you, the only one that can heal it. God, I'm I'm hesitant to say uh, I'm thankful for our loneliness because if it wasn't for it, we'd continue stumbling over our own feet. We'd continue stumbling in our own way. For those of us in the midst of loneliness this morning, Father, we pray for your path to be revealed to us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.